Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertia Morgana by P.D. Ospensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 6. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and Sue Flanagan, doctor, businesswoman and grandmother. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks Pete and Sue for joining me. Well, here we are, Chapter 6. How are you going, Pete and Sue? Brilliantly, well, thank, thank you. you. So, this chapter... Well, we've got a, a bit of a, a difference in opinion as to its validity and its not validity. I and Sue believe that it's a rollicking good chapter and uh, Pete has a different opinion. So so let's, let's thrash that out as we go through. This chapter, in essence, takes us over the concepts that the first five chapters have already touched. And in my personal opinion, I think this chapter could well have been put in earlier and perhaps substituted some of the other chapters because I think the concept that he's making, he has been making about the line and the, the plane being and the one-dimensional being, he's, he's hit many, many times and we're still doing it, although we must remember that he has said the first seven chapters he's building up a scaffold and he'll pull it down at some point. But, uh, yeah, I, I personally believe this chapter, if it had been put forward maybe chapter two, we could have maybe knocked a few other chapters out. My point exactly. Just <laughs> <So, laughs> to summarise so, by Peter. <laughs> no, I, I, so, I'll, I'll, so let's. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll go through it line by line. I'll tell you why. Okay, so do we want to just give a little bit of a summary of what we think of the chapter, just to get it off our chests, and so when we take our uh, no, our just, point of just, view forward. I tell you, what, I'd be interesting to know what listeners think on this one, but you know, I. I got it right from the beginning about what a straight line consisting of points is and what a plane consisting of straight lines is. Um, I really, really don't need ever more convoluted analogies that don't honestly explain it terribly well. Now, I mean, okay, we're going to break the third wall here, Alice, and I will explain to listeners that you and I just had a few minutes conversation uh, before we started recording this. And the fact of it is that we are now treading the same ground. I, and I think that his, his um, explanations take him into ever deeper and murkier water where we didn't need to, to, to tread. There, are, there is a wonderfully glowing, eye-opening moment in this chapter, which on its own would have been a great way to sum up the chapters that have gone before. And I, I totally agree with you. This chapter alone if it stood alone and replaced some of the stuff that went before, brilliant. Um, right now, um, it's almost like you don't know. I, I, I am a writer. Remember, I do. I write for a living. I am a professional writer, and I do know that when when a writer feels stuck, I feel it on the page. And as an editor, I would say so. I say you're going around in circles now. Um, you need to rethink that, or do you even need this bit at all? And I'm pretty certain that's what's happened here. Remember, as well, he, Ispensky, is not the only person in this world that's ever dealt with this subject matter, this exact metaphysical subject matter. And I can, I can name you um, 
philosophers who are better known for this kind of metaphysical explanation, who explain it more succinctly and better. This, this part of it. It's the rest of his book that I, I really love. But now we've got to a point where it's stop telling me about points on a line and a line consisting only of points and a point on the line only knowing other points on a line and only knowing the line if it knows the line at all, etc., etc. Don't need to hear it again. So there's me. Sue, what do you think of it? You know, Pete, I, I would agree with both of you and Alice. I think the interesting thing in this chapter is that he throws in the concept that the one-dimensional being would see higher being dimensions as being life, but doesn't explain that at all really for me. And um, I think that's if that would be a good thing that you know that could have been um, developed a lot further because I really don't follow that that particular concept here. I'm not sure. I mean, he's he's saying that I believe that they there is there is stuff here that you know that this this one dimensional the two dimensional being will not be able to to put any explanation to, and therefore will call consciousness expressing itself as life. But it just sort of is a, a line that sort of seems to sit there in the middle. It doesn't seem to have a great deal of explanation, and doesn't he doesn't take it further and say, well, you know, we're in three dimensions and. We see things as life, so is he thinking that's coming from the fifth or the sixth or the fourth? Where does he see that relate back into us? Well, we will pull this apart bit by bit as we progress through the hour. So let's yeah, let's see where it takes us with that one as well as uh, as as something to to explore perhaps. Well, I'll go along with see. you. I'm going to start with he starts again with the analogy of the one-dimensional being. And I'm just going to summarise it very quickly while Pete yawns. <laughs> okay, Pete, now if I hear any snores, I'm going to have to wake you up. <laughs> so let us, let us nonetheless, uh, let's, let's pull it down and see what we have with it. So he's one-dimensional being, and this is what he summarises in essence. He says, the one-dimensional being will live on a line and... The line is the universe for this being. Uh, they can only move backwards and forwards. We've gone through this, we know. Nothing exists outside of this line. They are not aware of the line upon which they are living and moving. There exists only two points, ahead and behind. And noticing the change in states of these points, the one-dimensional being will call these changes phenomena. So I guess things moving through the line will look like a point but they they will that point will change and it will call that phenomena different objects in the world puzzle here we go this is the different objects in the world passing through this line will be received by the one dimensional being as points only so that's his summation okay right i'm not i'm not letting this go um again here he, here he goes i've got to line something here that you lovingly um just glossed over Here's quote-unquote, for there will exist only two points, ahead and behind, or maybe just one point ahead. Uh, actually, there will exist three in that analogy because there will be the point itself. If it's going to be aware, if there's an, any sense of awareness, either of ahead or behind or just ahead, then there will be awareness of self. Absolutely there will. 
Um, so, and he doesn't actually say that there will be this. There may be. There may be points. There may. Uh, so where does that leave us? Oh, we just gloss over that, do we, um, good Jeff and Winston uh, Spencer, and and just like. Uh, we'll we'll take it as, uh, as read that because you've said it that we've got to accept it. No, it's either is or it isn't. Which is it? Is it one point ahead or is it two points ahead and behind? And what about the point that's doing the observing? Um, because the observer will will be aware of itself. So um, let's let's not let's not just gloss over. This is what I mean by by going over the same old ground. He starts to get himself into trouble. He he really does. Um, there's, there's no getting away that this is a point that needs to be argued out. You can't just accept that. You cannot just uh, expect us to accept that and go on. You cannot. You, you he's come out with it. Then, which, which is it, mate? Do you think that he might be suggesting that different points, one-dimensional beings, would have different experiences with some just seeing ahead, some seeing both, some seeing the, the present as well. Okay. That, 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 yeah, I don't that know. I mean, I'm just at all. tossing something in here. No, but that doesn't explain it at all because then we're into another realm. Oh, what level of, of um, awareness do, does an individual point on the line have? You, you really, it opens that can of worms. You know, okay, do, do, some, do some points have more awareness than others? What is it like to be living on this line? Are some of them able to see the past and the future, are some of them even to, able to conceive of the past and the future, are some of them only able to conceive of the past? And what about the observer? Is the observer not aware of itself on, on, the, on this line? And if not, why not? Uh, because uh, if it can conceive of a point ahead, why can't it be um, aware of itself as, as a third potential point? Uh, it, it just glossed over. And it's, it's taken that we are supposed to accept that. Well, I don't. I think he needs to explain what he what exactly he means about that by that, and he doesn't. And I I'd also say, and and uh, no pun intended, but what is the point of that? Mm -hmm. What is the point? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Of saying anything about to me, the only point about looking at a one dimension is to say the universe is the line. Thank you. And That's exactly my point. Everything else we is outside of the line. And we've already done that in the previous five chapters ad nauseum. Yep. Good. Anyway, anyway, let's move on because we can't I would spend agree the whole with you both. I would certainly way. agree with you both. Yep. Okay. All right. So I think the other thing that that he is saying is that things intersecting with the line, and you know, this is I'll say the same thing for the two dimensional being things intersecting with a plane constitute phenomenon. So. The point he's making is that to the one-dimensional being or, in fact, the two-dimensional being, anything intersecting with, with their world, the line or the plane, they look at as something not, not coming from another dimension but something in their, in their dimension and it's a phenomenon, something they can measure, something they can explain. So... I guess well, I'll, I'll do some quoting from the one-dimensional. Phenomena according to the character and properties of passing objects and the velocity and property of their motions for the one-dimensional being will be constant or variable, short or long, periodical or unperiodical, but the one-dimensional being will be absolutely unable to understand or explain the constancy of variability, the duration of the brevity, etc., etc. So it's saying that 
they will just experience changes in their environment from other planes as if they're happening in their plane, but they don't understand how that happens. And, and I think, Alice, that the, the point I, I believe that uh, Espensky is, is trying to, to stimulate our minds to is, well, what's happening two dimensions up from us? Because we're, we're obviously experiencing uh, phenomenon, planets and motions and all sorts of things. And uh, so I guess the analogy is, is for the purpose, I, I believe, of, of moving us forward. Is that what you guys think? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's taking us by the hand and walking us through the same stuff again. It's almost, as Pete has animatedly pointed out, it, it's almost even insulting to our intelligence that we have to explain it once again. But he's putting it all into one spot. I guess up to this point he has he's gone through all this but not in one block. And this chapter he's consolidating all of that and he's going bang, 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 through the through the whole concept, one dimension, two dimension, three dimension, and then leaving us to think about what that might mean for us with the fourth dimension. I will point out yet again that he does in the one dimensional. Oh, lost Pete. There's a Spensky giving you an object lesson from the next dimension as <laughs> to your thoughts are <laughs> upsetting him. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think he was that much of a coward. If he wants to face up to me, I'll, you can give me a lesson. I'll give anyone an all. Anyway. All right, a... so I was, in, I was in the middle of saying when this happened that he brings this atom concept in again, and I, I swear I just don't get it. He's, no, he's, nor me. Let, me. let me just uh, give you a little quote of it, and then we can we can move on after that. But I just have to air my point of view on this. Let us take an atom hovering in space or a simple particle of dust carried along by the air. Now, to me, dust and atoms aren't the same, but no, let's not, go. No, let's and go, yeah, let us on. imagine that the atom or particle of dust possesses a consciousness, i.e. separates himself from the outside world and is conscious only of that which lies in the line of his motion and with which he himself comes in contact he will be a one-dimensional being in the full sense of the word. Now, look, Goodio, we, we, it's a bit of a concept that says let's let's assume that an atom has con uh, consciousness, but to be fair, we already got that with the one-dimensional being. It doesn't have to be an atom or a particle of dust. It could just be the fictitious one-dimensional being, or maybe not fictitious, but one nonetheless. So he keeps bringing in the atom thing, and I really think it's almost like this is a this is a um, concept that's popular of the day back in the you know early 1900s. It's a popular concept. I just want and to be one, and, on and one that he doesn't and the one that he doesn't get because mm. he would understand that the atom even by then Rutherford had split the atom by now and he we we know that the atom consists of subatomic particles that are also points moving in their own way and now we i mean he wouldn't have understood then but we understand now that we're talking about a wave not a particle necessarily even so i'd have left atoms out of it you're right he's trying to be fashionable but there's a massive difference and it was known even then between a part a speck of dust and an atom so which do you want for your analogy mr uspensky well, uh, yeah. And frankly, once he spent five chapters getting us used to the concept of a point on a line. Uh, leave it at that. Yeah, we're there. We're there. I'm with, I'm uh, with you, Alice. I really am. So, okay. So 
that that let's let's move on from the one dimensional being. <laughs> yeah, let's, go on. Let's have a look at the two dimensional being. Okay, so here's again we'll we'll just summarize the two dimensional being for anyone who's missed him in the first five chapters. The two dimensional being lives on a plane, experiences everything as lines, and isn't aware of the plane upon which he lives but will be aware he is in something, so he may call this something the ether. Matter aligns. So I guess we, we've, we've had this before, this concept of ether, and we've, we've talked about it. I think he's, he's drawing an analogy to us, you know, we are living in this thing called, at the time, the ether. So I guess he's drawing an analogy to do we know what we're, we're in. We've lived in a world of space travel. We, we can understand concept of space. We don't have to use the word ether. Uh, he's, he's talking to an audience of his time, but I think from a modern audience's point of view, um, we could just say space. We don't know, we don't know the con concept of space. They even make up nonsense now to try to fill space like dark matter and dark energy, which <laughs> demonstrably is, is a nonsense. But nevertheless, moving on, we can use space, couldn't we? For a modern audience, if we if we are discussing this podcast, so that a modern listener could understand easily, um, we could just call it space. And we don't mean necessarily space as in outer space. We just mean yeah. space. Yep. Your thoughts, Sue? I'm I'm with you guys. You know, I think um, I think it would be interesting. I mean, Spensky, uh, was looking at him on the internet, passed away in the 1940s, I believe. So I wonder how much he had progressed with the science of the day um, and, you know, didn't rewrite his book, of course, but, uh, but his final thoughts were with some of these concepts of ether and things. But that's just a, a little distraction. He wasn't very complimentary about science, so he might, may not have really... <laughs> <followed up. laughs> um, okay. So uh, he also says these lines he will feel as sensations. So anything that does not produce sensations, this is what, what he's saying, is the reason he doesn't understand, he doesn't see the plane he's on, is that anything that produces sensations like the lines, they'll exist to the to the plane man or the plane person. Uh, anything that doesn't produce sensations does not exist. So that's, that's, that's where he's drawing this, and, and we talked about it way back in podcast one or two about, you know, fish in the water, you know, and I said that uh, I didn't think the fish understood he was in water, but that was uh, challenged that uh, why not? And I guess we know we're in air. So mm, we do. Uh, I guess what is a sensation? I mean, he's not really defined what a sensation means. We're assuming something they can touch, but maybe the plane itself feels smooth and you can slide along it and that's a sensation i'm not sure but that this is where he comes i think i think it's a little airy fairy i i'm i'm not convinced if what, you're a plane in? person you wouldn't know you're in a plane or for a third dimension or we don't know we're in space that's that's to me a little fuzzy mhm mm i'm with or you is his point that they can't define it from the perspective that we would define it from in other words, when you look back from the three-dimensional, you say this is a plane, going back to the two-dimensionals, whereas when you're on the two-dimensional, not seeing it from the three, you would just say this is. Don't know if that's the point. Well, he, but... Yeah. He does go a little further on. We'll get to that where he talks about, you know, you can see above and below the plane is something that doesn't exist. But uh, let's, let's, uh, let's go on to the next thing. 
the thing that I look this bent my my brain this concept that he had about moving around a square for the plain man and I'm just going to voice it because it it got me tied up in knots for weeks and I'm not really convinced of it he talks about the the plain man going around a square and he's saying when he looks at the the side of the square that line will be immobile it will be a stationary object for him but when he gets to the angle he won't see an angle he'll still see a line but that because you can only see an angle if you're above it you can't see an angle if you're in line with it and he draws an analogy to getting two matchsticks and, and putting them into your eyes and you'll see that that looks like a straight line but he said that the curious property of that line is that as you move towards it the middle point will stay still and the the points radiating out from that central point, i.e. from the corner, will appear to be moving backwards. So it will appear to have motion. Close one eye and try that. It doesn't. So he's assuming stereoscopic vision for the plain man. Um, carry, carry on, Mr. Spensky, with your wonderful analogies. Move on. Well, yeah, I, I have I don't, I don't like this struggled with it. I really don't. No, I, I, and I, I just think, you know, we're going around in circles. I'm, you know, I, I, I got what a, a point in a one-dimensional universe is and what it must be like and it could only see, it only has the, the straight line and so on. I got that from chapter one. Honestly, I did, I'm, I'm done. Stop telling me. I'm, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not stupid. I got it. Move on to the point that you've got in this chapter of Spensky, which I know we are going to come to, but my God, it, it, getting there is, is appalling. Anyway, I, I won't say this anymore. You, you know that I'm, I'm not happy with any of this. Carry on, uh, Alison. Move us through the scaffold. Okay. So, look, you know, to be fair, I, I, I do get where you're coming from. I enjoyed this chapter myself. However, I do take your point that it was uh, a reiteration. What I enjoyed about it is it put everything in one place, and I kind of—I think at this point I, I've got it. Maybe I'm—I haven't had—I haven't had the training you've had, Pete, and I haven't had mm -hmm. the exposure to other no. um, authors. That. So, so from my point of view, this being a, a bit of a newbie to all of this, this chapter kind of pulled it all together for me. So, you know, the, the listeners will either love it or hate it and uh, they won't be alone. Somebody will, <laughs> will be in agreement with them. So yeah. he makes a lot of analogies, but what I want to move along to is, is the, I think, the, the nitty-gritty of this. And it's about the concept of time being something perceived from another plane and, and so, to your point earlier, what, what is the phenomenon of life? So when he talks about a, a two-dimensional being on a plane and we're looking at a three-dimensional uh, solid, say, moving through the plane, that two-dimensional being will only see lines. So say it was a cylinder moving through the, the plane, it will see circle. It'll just see a circle. And if you take Aspensky's point of view, that circle will be moving lines. But let's, let's leave that out of it for the moment. This cylinder moving through the plane will just appear as a circle and it'll start and it'll appear to have come out of nowhere which the plane being will call the future 
coming out of the future. And as it moves through, it'll just be in the present. And then when it disappears out the other side, it will have gone into the past. It will cease to exist. And yet that cylinder is a moving object on a higher plane. And this is what I think he's saying is something that looks like the passing of time. He's talking about being motion of a solid object or some solid objects not the right word is it's it's motion of an object in a higher dimension any thoughts i think it becomes quite no. convoluted as you said earlier on pete it becomes um yeah you know because especially well, we're trying to bring in concepts of levels that are, um, are multiple about up and how this being would would have a look at them why would it assume time why would the plane being assume time for these phenomena that just come, appear and disappear? Well, time as in they've, they've come out of the future into the past, the passing of time, not clock time. Well, that means that we'd have to conceive somehow of that having passed. Mm, which is, it, it sees us, say, the intersection of it on the plane, the circle, for well, how do we, how some periodicity. Hang on, how do we have a, a, a concept of the past? We, we get our concept of the past because we observe phenomena in the 3D environment that, have, that are subject to change. In other words, we see an object when it's brand new. It stands in place. Let's say a statue. We put a statue up in the town square. It's brilliant and pristine white marble when we put it up there. And over time, during the course of one lifetime, it's filthy, dirty, bird muck on it, the whole thing. We've seen a change over time. But we still see that object so that we have this relationship between our memory of it being pristine and what it is now. And from that, we get a concept of time. He's telling us that once this, once the cylinder has passed through the plane, it's gone. There's nothing nothing to relate it to. So that when he says that they will, the plane um, being will imagine that it came from the future and then it's disappeared into the past, I'm going to challenge that. How? It has no relation relationship uh, with change because it never sees the object once it's passed through its own plane. Therefore, it would never have developed a concept of time, future or past. That's my my view of it anyway. But, but I, don't, I, I really don't want us to get stuck on my objections to it because I could object to virtually every line in this chapter. I think, he, I, I think it's... Uh, I've said it and I'm not going to say it again. But, so you, you just keep moving through. But I will, I will pop in. I, I'm not going to allow him to just get away with these assumptions because it's, I, I, unless he explains it. And don't, let's not pretend that he doesn't try to explain it. He tries to be a clever clogs with all of his other analogies. But then he glosses over what clearly he is a clever man. He, he can't have missed this fact. He probably didn't feel like he could explain it either. And he hoped that he wanted the analogy that he'd got in his head and that was the one he was going to go for. But it doesn't half leave a lot of questions unanswered. And I'm going to ask you, Pete, for another, another thought. What does it matter? I mean, the concept he's trying to... What does it matter if he he does or doesn't nail... The, uh, the concept of where the one and two-dimensional being is. when Because we don't live in a one-dimension or a two-dimension only, does it matter if we can't completely analyse life from their perspective? I think then the don't talk about this. Make is because, don't talk about this. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I think that's a valid point too, Pete. What I'm saying is that he's got to move on, which he does in the book. And um, the concept, I think, yeah, we're we're all in agreement. It has been discussed many chapters before, uh, is that perception relates to the dimension you're in and higher dimensions are perceived as motion and then time. And then he goes one step further and says, Hi, you know, above that again, you'll get life somewhere. So, yeah. No, but, I mean, he, no, but the, the point, hang on, the point he's actually making is that these two-dimensional beings will will see this, will imagine this thing, that this phenomena that appears as coming from the future and disappearing into the past. You haven't actually answered that. He's made a heck of a statement there. Why would they? Where would they get a concept of, of future and past from when they cannot even conceive of the, the, the dimension where this phenomena appears from or that where it goes to? All they know is that the light flashes on. It's there and it's gone. Where does their concept of time come from for them to actually assume, as he says, that they came from the future and they disappear into the past? They have no point of reference to even consider the idea of time. He, again, is making a massive sweeping assumption that he then moves on from. You cannot accept his point of view without without him explaining how this two-dimensional thing would have any concept of past or future. You cannot just accept that. and go, Well, you can. I mean, goodness, you can, but it would be um, illogical. Smart enough people will, will get that that is a question that needs to be answered. Where do they get this from? Where is this? He's got to start coming in with terms of consciousness and imagination at that point. Because he's just said that they would. How does he know? Has he been a two-dimensional being? There's nothing in his description of the second dimension that would give us any... In fact, he spent five chapters telling them that they would be limited to what happens in their plane of existence, whether you're a point on a line or a line on a plane. So, so where would they get this idea from? Well, let's, let's look at his analogy of the wheel yeah, and spokes. The wheel so is great is, for us. From our dimension, yeah. it, it explains the two-dimension. It doesn't yeah. explain so it from a two-dimension's point of view, but carry on. <laughs> Let, let's, let's unpack it first and, uh, and, and see what we come up with. So he's saying, let us imagine that a wheel with spokes painted different colours is rotating through the plane upon which the plane being lives. To such a being, all the motion of the wheel will appear as variation of the colour of the line of intersection of the wheel and the plane. So we'll just see a line changing colour. The plane being will call this variation of the colour of the line a phenomenon. Observing these phenomena, he will notice that they come in some certain uh, succession. He will know that the black line is followed by the white and the white by the blue and the blue by the red and so on. The change in colour of the lines in the opinion of the two-dimensional being, will depend on causes lying right in the plane. Any presupposition uh, of the possibility of the existence of causes lying outside of the plane, he will characterise as fantastic and entirely unscientific. It will seem to him because he will never be in a position to represent the wheel to himself, the parts of the wheel on both sides of the plane. So what he's saying is that that wheel moves through he sees that line changing colours. So, yes, it's blue at the moment, and then it's red. So the blue line has disappeared, gone into the past. The red line has come out of the future into into his present moment. And, look, he does – I'll get to it shortly, but he does then 
extrapolate further onto this concept. But that's what he's sort of saying is the past and the future, something appearing and then disappearing. And when it disappears, he's saying that's gone into the past. But when you look from a three-dimensional point of view, that wheel still exists and those spokes still exist. They're just moving through the plane. So in essence, he's saying that the past and the future exist simultaneously in another plane. But to the plane being, they exist separately as a line. He doesn't even know the wheel's there. He just sees a line changing colours. I'm happy to accept that bit. I mean, that to me is the, the probably the easiest way of explaining the concept, isn't it? Just the, the fact that it's, you know, it's always there. The wheel is always there in the third dimension, so to speak. Or at the time where we're, we're rotating it, is, it is always there. And therefore, that's what you see. Yeah, that to me is logical. Have you got thoughts on that, Pete? No, the wheel, the wheel I like. The wheel explains the the two-dimensional experience from our perspective. That's all I wanted to do. That'll do for me. That's yeah, it. That, I, that's I, fine. I think we, 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 can, we can understand from our perspective that the, the two-dimensional plane being will only see this flash of light of a colour. It's there, then it's gone. Yep. So that's that to, to the... To the... Um, plane being is, is that concept of yeah. time. And all it will see is an appearance of lines of different colour. It's having what we would describe as a psychedelic experience because all it's seeing is flashing lights, coloured lights. <laughs> it must be must be fun to be a two-dimensional being. So, okay, so... If that We're assuming that it has awareness, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let, let's... let's, let's That's not let's accept that this is this is a fictional being. So now Aspensky takes this concept of this uh, coloured wheel a little further. He says, now two, now, now two multicoloured spoked wheels going in opposite directions. Now something can appear from the past. So he's saying, let us imagine that through the plane upon which the two-dimensional being lives, two wheels with multicoloured spokes are rotating and are rotating in opposite directions. The spokes of one wheel come from above and go below. The spokes of the other come from below and go above. The plane being will never notice it. He will never notice from where one line, which he sees, there lies the past. From the other line, there lies the future. Uh, this thought will never even come into his head because he will conceive of the past and the future very confusedly, regarding them as concepts, not as actual facts. He will tenaciously think that the future is that wherefrom everything comes and the past is that whereto everything goes and wherefrom nothing returns. He will be totally unable to understand that events may arise from the past just as they do from the future. Now, I, I think that's quite a, a cool concept if you extrapolate it to us, uh, that we think things come in one direction from the future into the present out to the past in one one direction only but do we really understand that something might come back from the past into the present out to the future the other way i mean maybe that's our concept of deja vu maybe that's that concept of i think i've experienced this before somewhere in the past i'm just putting it out there i like the simple analogy of it i like the, i like the spokes in the wheel um i'm not gonna go into it again about having to pin some some state of awareness of things that um, it couldn't be aware of onto the two-dimensional plane being. 
he puts words and thoughts into the mouth and mind of the two-dimensional plane being that he doesn't explain how it could be there. Um, but, but from my point of view, from a third-dimensional point of view, I get it. What we would see is wheels turning in opposite directions, one clockwise, one anticlockwise, and we would understand that the, the bar we see on that plane has come from below, and the bar we've seen on the other plane has come from above. Brilliant. I, I get that. Whereas if you were only looking from the point of view of the letterbox of the plane, all you would see was the, the flickering lines, colored lines coming into your consciousness, and you'd see them, and then they'd be there, and then they'd be gone. And if you had a concept that the future was above and the past was below the, the plane? There's my problem. I don't direction. even want, I do not want to even go there. That, that's a, you, you see, you, you've done that there. And if you, that's a huge if. What do you mean it's a huge if? This is what he said. <laughs> just because he says so it doesn't the mean analogy. it isn't a huge if. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying that then would, would the, I understand from our perspective, but from the two-dimensional plane being's perspective, would they have a concept of the above being the future and below being the past? Or vice versa? Well, no. That's no, what I mean by being a big if. I don't think but they would. All, they would. all they'd be aware of is that there is a flickering se sequence of light, light lines. And what the heck but is I that? But I think that's exactly Aspensky's point because he was yeah. talking when we, we had the one wheel and he was saying that they, they see just this changing coloured line and it's yeah. it's come and then it's gone. Mm -hmm. So say that that's coming from above through the plane to the below. So it's sort of in the extrapolation of that, things come from above the plane into the plane and go out. That's coming from the future into the present into the past, if that's what they assume. How, and I'm saying <laughs> See, if that's... That, and that's what, hang on. And I'm saying that that's a big if. That's the big but, if. Okay, so if that's what they assume. And, and so just taking the analogy and assuming that's what they assume, then if we had the wheel coming in the opposite direction, theoretically that wheel, that, that, that line is coming from the past into the future. Now, just theoretically, but the plane being will not know it. All they will see is a line. And I guess to extrapolate that for me, it's saying, well, we think things come from the future into the present into the past, but how do we know they're not coming from the past into the present into the future? We don't know. We just see what we see on our plane. I think that's his, his point. I know. We don't and, I know. Don't, and that's why I think that he could have just said exactly what you've just said, and he didn't need to confuse it by having, by even mentioning the past and the future for the plane being. He could have said, now, from our perspective, we, we can look at, at it like this, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I really don't think that, you know, that using the plane being, which is a, a fictional being uh, as far as we are aware, to start with, uh, and then having it have concepts of things that he's finding it difficult for us to understand in the third dimension, um, suddenly he's, uh, he's giving the plane being um, an awareness of concepts that he's struggling to explain to us in the third dimension. I think if he'd have kept it as simple as your explanation, Alice, I think he would have done a far better job. I'd make a good editor. I think you would in this one, for sure, definitely, because your explanation is better and it's more concise. I just wonder if Aspensky being a mathematician, where the formula is concrete and tied up and where you you don't really have a lot of 
loose ends in a formula. I think that's perhaps perhaps it's his background that uh, is uh, is giving him this need to uh, dissect the formula back down to its 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 root cause. And and be that as it may, I mean we all have our we all have our, our perspective and the way we view things in our life. And uh, his is that of a mathematician and uh, an erudite thinker and uh, in back in the 1900s. So, you know, I wonder how many conversations he's had with different groups of people and they've asked him for further explanation and then he's felt the need to put it in where in actual fact, had he written the book without any outside interference, he may have done a simpler job. I don't well, know. I'll, I'll give it. I'll, I'll give him a, a bit of a thumbs up from me on that one, though, because yes, he's he's gone through this analogy with the wheels moving in different directions, but that that turned on a light for me. That I actually, what I just explained about it was got from his analogy. I do take your point, Pete, that there are some big ifs and there are some big assumptions. He's he's telling a story that doesn't necessarily mean it's. Factual. I think he's telling a story to, to to paint a picture. But let's move on because I think we're getting into the, actually the point now as, as to what well, this next point I, I think was really relevant. He said, looking at, again, fictitiously, he looks at us being able to uh, communicate with a plain being and be able to talk to them about what we can see from a third dimensional point of view. So if we, well, if the plain being had an, uh, enough consciousness to even understand our language and to understand what we were saying, we could explain to them that what they see as a, a line on the plane is a wheel. Now, they have no explanation of the wheel, but we could tell them what colour was coming next. So we would look like somebody who could predict the future. We could say to them, oh, the red wheels, the red line's coming next, the blue line's coming next, this is happening and that's happening. And so to the plain being, some being from a higher uh, plane could possibly, and he says, um, appear omniscient or potentially uh, omnipotent, but above all incomprehensible beings of a quite inconceivable category. So they wouldn't understand us, but they would see us as, as having some great knowledge of their world and how things are yeah, predicting the future. I'm, I'm with you, Ali. I think that's that's how it would appear. But, um, you know, who's, who's, who's to say, as Pete would no doubt bring up, that what the, that person would, would, uh, would really think with consciousness. The point, I guess, is that, when you view from a higher from a higher dimension, you have an added insight. That's that's the point, isn't it? I think, and therefore it gives you um, an advantage. I don't know at this point whether he's wanting to discuss concepts of, of God or whatever in whatever form and whatever people have that uh, that that um, concept from from all the various different religions. And I think he's very carefully not used any of the the words such you know that, that are denominational and I think that's a, a very valuable concept to leave it non-denominational but there is an ascribing of power I think that's probably the more point isn't it he's making you would ascribe to this person power when in actual fact it's just a, a greater perception what are you thinking Pete? Nothing because I have nothing further to say on on these these matters than, than what I've already said uh, I get it 
I get the spoke thing, uh, and I get it going backwards. Um, let's let's move on. I can. I all I need to understand is that they would see us if they could if they could see us at all as a third dimensional being because we understand the whole of the wheel and the and the motion of the wheel, and they would think, my God, they have supersensory knowledge. Wow, amazing! What creatures? Okay, yeah, I get that. So we are like huge arch archangelic forces with sight and vision and knowledge and understanding beyond our even our comprehension. In fact, we we would get to understand very quickly that we couldn't even understand what these what these incredible deity figures uh, were talking about because they were they were using language we wouldn't understand about concepts that are so unfamiliar to us that we don't even know what they're talking about. I get that. Yep. That's it. Well, I, th I really like that. I really like this concept because it made me think, well, okay, well, what about things that we think are... Yeah, yeah I get that. And that's, why, and that's why I know where he's come from and I know what the Theosophical Society was doing with Alice Bailey and um, Blav Helena Blavatsky. I know what all of the other organisations that he was well well aware of and actually partook of certain aspects of, of their teachings and practices and I know what he was communicating with most people would call angelic forces that that you do have this difficulty communicating with so I know where he's coming from but yeah it's 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 great and we understand that now that from a lower dimension the thoughts concepts and methods of communication of, of a higher being would be incomprehensible even if we could make communication with them it would take a great deal of effort to find a common ground through which we could communicate and, and assimilate the wisdom of these higher powers and i think this this is the point i out of this chapter these are the two points that i got it was we're limited on this three-dimensional plane, so we can have a three-dimensional experience. Mm -hmm. That we, what we see on this plane, we assume happens on this plane. We assume that the events and the, the the things that cause other things all happen on this plane. But is that true? That's an assumption we're making. And if we we're looking at the two-dimensional being, they would think the same thing. They would think everything that happened on their plane, that that line changing, was something to do with with the plane and, and as he points mm -hmm. out he said if every time the white line appeared on the plane a bell rang he'd say oh the bell makes the white line come Do you know it's totally something outside of the plane that's that's the point and he's made that point many many times the second point is that we only have an understanding based on what we're conscious our consciousness allows us to have and he just he doesn't use that those words but you know what we consciously are allowed to have so Things that we think are um, from a higher, and you know, from a higher being, you know, things that we think we ask of a higher being, etc. Is is that higher being just a a being from another dimension that has a broader perspective of our world, without necessarily having any greater powers other than the fact that they have a consciousness that that, that works in another plane, uh, in a higher dimension. That's what I think. That's what I think. This chapter well, pulls out. It's a little more in it in some ways, though, because he does then go ahead and talk about uh, the two-dimensional being attempting or transforming into the three-dimensional being 
and never being able to go back, but having the potential to do it by basically by opening up their their, their conception. And so therefore, I think by analogy, he's saying, isn't it, that uh, we have a potential to be that fourth dimensional being. It's just uh, we've got to make the leap and the step and get there. And uh, and once we do, we'll never be the same. Uh, he does that discussion later on on that as well. But uh, that's a spoiler alert, isn't it, for for later on? But uh, I think that's what he's really. You know, that's that is that concept in there is saying, well, why can't we? Why can't we become fourth dimensional? If we're fourth dimensional, why can't we become fifth? And that's then you know, not mentioned here. Is there's that concept of consciousness, isn't it again? He's setting the scene here to say, well, okay, if it's just about being aware and being able to understand a, a dimension higher than yourself and, and with by extrapolation, that's to do with being you know, a, a change in your um, consciousness. So if it's an expansion of consciousness that's required to understand uh, what a high, high dimension would see of our dimension, then perhaps we too could break the limitations of the third dimension by shifting gears but having said that we do know that 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 is i mean the book is taking us to the to to that direction but at this point it's just setting a a bit of a, a bit of a scene uh and nothing more and and i will say that Aspensky he he in you know a couple of chapters down the track says well all this analogy stuff really isn't isn't the cat's meow like you know, we, we, we've put it in here because it is, there are a lot of holes in it and it doesn't give us anything. Let's get into the real stuff. So, yeah, oh, I agree. I mean, it, he's taken a long time to get to this point, And I think, you know, we could have just those two points would have that, done it that, that he's made would have done it. And he could have probably squeezed that into, well, he could have, I think, condensed these first seven chapters into some very short, succinct couple of chapters. Um, pulling out the eyes of it, but uh, yeah, and he and he's he's walking us through it. I mean, he's obviously a very intelligent man, um, and he has insights far beyond what he's putting in the in in the in these chapters. But uh, he's trying to simplify it. He's trying to make it understandable for the uh, the everyday person. <laughs> you think so? I don't think that that was his audience at all. Well, yes, I, I get that. I I get he wrote it for his contemporaries. However, that's, that's much more likely. However, when you publish a book to the to anyone who wants to buy it, you are putting this information out to whatever audience is is willing to consume it. Alice, I still don't understand how he got to the concept that a few dimensions up, that that two dimensional being would see life. Oh, living life. beings. I understand the living being concept. I think what he's saying, and it, and it, and it all base, it's all pivots on some pretty big leaps of faith. So his first concept is that plain being would see a line, a straight line, as a move, not you know, an immovable object, like solid object. And and here's the bit that gets a bit fuzzy. When you get to the angle, he's and you have to accept this to accept his whole theory. When you get to an angle, that's seen as a moving line. So angles and curves to a two-dimensional being appear as if they're moving. Solid straight lines appear as if they're solids. So what if you have a 
curved, say, a, um, a cylinder that is also moving. So it's not only moving from the point of view of the angles that he sees motion of, but he also sees another motion that uh, appears separate. And the separateness is he can measure and make some sort of prediction as to the the um, angles and you, know, you can say, well, you know, it, it moves at this speed and it looks like that. He can make some sort of um, calculations, but he can't make any calculations of something that's moving in addition to that because it's random. It's It appears like it has a life of its own. It, it It's not predictable. That's what I think he's saying is that things that are really moving appear like life. So if I had a cylinder that was really moving through his plane, he'd see this curved curved line that has motion because it's curved and also moving like unpredictably. So he would say it has a life of its own. It is living. It is doing something outside he, what he can predict it would, would do. That's what I think he's saying about living. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, to me that says that's, that's a physical dimension that's now looking you know, unexplained physical motion. But I'm not quite sure how he goes from the leap there to what we see as life and the differentiation between the physical world and what we see as the living world. I don't get it. Why would they appear as living? I, I, I honestly don't. I, I, I think that this this chapter is where um, uh, it's something to me has gone terribly wrong because... I can't see the point uh, of even saying it. And, and how does that help us? And, and and how can we make that assumption? Why would they? Why would it appear as living? I think his point is, right or wrongly, that because the motion is uh, independent of anything else on the plane, of something that can be measured. So if we look at what we think of as life, we can we can say that uh, moving objects, a car going past, etc. We can say, you know, well, we're driving the car. We can predict how that car is going to move, etc. But uh, if we couldn't predict, like our own, you know, people, we interact with people. They mm-hmm. are doing things of their own, like they're a, a sealed unit, basically. So they live independently of the rest of the inanimate objects around them. Yeah. That's what I think uh, he's saying. Okay, and that's great of that, but how does that fit in with everything else that he's just told us? Yeah, well, there's the thing. I think... That's why I, I think I, I'm, I'm lost uh, for, to, to, to comment on it. It's like, great, brilliant, fabulous. Let's move on. Well, I don't understand why he's even saying it. He's drawing a long bow, and I, I'm with you there, because it does, like, you know, having read the rest of the book, what does it matter? This... This whole chapter, I think it's it's great from the point of view of you know, what ifs, having a you know, stretching your your thoughts into different directions. But uh, and there are some points written. in here. I know that you guys are trying to give him a pass, but that's not how it's written. It's it's not written as a what if. I'm trying to stretch you and make you think. He's trying to tell you something. He is very didactic. Again, you know, I'm only reading it in translation, but that's what he is. He's not. He's not saying what if. He's actually saying this is. Well, you're true. That's true. He is saying what this is. I'm, oh, I guess what I'm saying is, if you take it just from the point of view, well, that's an interesting way of looking at things. I think you can get through this chapter because it's not. 
It's I not am through really it. <laughs> you are. You're over it. Not even just through it. You're over yeah, it. Um but uh, I guess more to the point, he's still building the scaffold. And I guess, you know, we've got a one more chapter to go before he throws this scaffold into disarray and gets on with the really interesting stuff. The last thing I want to talk about in this chapter is the example that Spence has given about Hinton and the spiral and the stick. So he's shown some figures here which are on the website. He's, he's quoting Hinton, one of his favourites, and this is what he says. Imagine a sheet of still water into which a slanting stick is being lowered with a motion vertically downwards. And then he's, you're looking at the figure here. He says, let one, two, three, figure one be three consecutive points of the stick, i.e. there will be three consecutive positions of the meeting of the stick with the surface of the water. As the stick passes down, the meeting will move from A onto B and C. Suppose now all the water will be removed except a film. At the meeting of the film and the stick, there will be an interruption of the film. If we suppose the film to have a property like that of soap bubble, of closing up around the penetrating object, then as the stick goes vertically downwards, the interruption in the film will move on. Okay, so he goes on. If we pass a spiral through the film, the intersection will give a point moving in a circle, and he's shown that as a dotted line on figure two. Now, I'm not quite sure where he's going here, but then he goes on to say, for the plane being, such a point moving in a circle in its plane will probably constitute a cosmical phenomenon, something like the motion of a planet in its orbit. So I'm presuming he's trying to give us some sort of reference to what we think the motion in our dimension is, uh, potentially something solid in a higher dimension uh, intersecting. He then goes on to make it more convoluted. Suppose now the spiral be still and the film to move vertically upwards. The whole spiral would be represented in the film in the consecutive positions of the point of intersection. So I can kind of imagine that as you move the film up, it's not going to be essentially a circle on the, the plane anymore. It'll just be a point moving like a dotted line. Then he says, if instead of one spiral we take a complicated construction consisting of spirals, inclined and straight lines, broken and curved lines, and if the film move vertically upwards, we shall have an entire universe of moving points, the movements of which will appear to the plane being as original. The plane being will explain these movements as depending one upon the other, and indeed we will never happen to think of these movements are fictitious and are dependent on the spirals and other lines lying outside of his space. To me, I think he's trying to make some reference to the way we see the cosmos, the you know stars and planets and 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 the likes, as as if they're some sort of shape from another dimension intersecting with ours and it's stationary and we look at it as movement. I think that's what he's trying to say. It, 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 I mean, the figures, I can understand what they're, they're showing, but I'm not sure really what they're showing. So anyway, I'd like your input on that before we finish off in this chapter because I think the spiral later on is something that, that we'll be able to pick up on. Sure, as a symbol, the spiral, but look, um, we, need to, we need to get beyond this because... If that's if, if what he's just described um, is what he believes to be what's really happening, 
um, what accounts for the movement of the plane? What, what accounts for the movement of the film? How thick is the film? Were we, I mean, what, what, what constitutes a point? Um, because Saturn is bigger than Mercury, for example, and the Sun is bigger than all of them, and then there are bigger things than the Sun, and entire galaxies are moving in this way that we describe. So, uh, to me, because of this, um, and, and, and the really important part about this is, well, why is the film moving? What is the film and why is it moving? Um, and that's, yeah. that's just, all, all of that is ignored. So I, for me, it doesn't resonate at all. I, I, don't, I don't get um, anything from it whatsoever. And I, and I can understand, look, I can understand about the stick, but I can't see how that helps us talk about um, reality or the nature of uh, multiple dimensions. I can understand, you know, if the stick goes in um, at an angle, as it, as, it, as it is lowered, the point of entry into the, the, the surface of the water, the film as he calls it, meniscus is the real word, but um, as it goes through, it would appear that that point of entry is moving, if that, if that is at an angle. So, ah, yeah. yes, it is. Yes, there. I say, yeah, yeah. That goes down. Now that's touching. Now that's touching. If it goes, what we shouldn't think of and what isn't well described in the words is, we're not talking about the stick going in like that, where the point of contact would remain constant. We're talking about a stick at an angle going down like that in a vertical motion, so that the point of contact will change along along its surface. Is that helping? Is that helping describe anything about the nature of um, multiple dimensions and our connection with them and how we um, connect with them? For me, it's not doing that at all. It's not helping in one little bit. No, I found that quite a complicated um, example. I mean, he is quoting Hinton in part of this, but I think, I think his overall point is, as yet again, he's reiterating that motion is illusory. It's actually an extension of space in a higher dimension. I can't think we this just, is where he's trying to. <laughs> you see, I told you I'm a great editor. <laughs> just cut to the chase. But I think that's that's the point he's making, and I can I can understand that. Like. From chapter one all the way through to this chapter, we've gone over and over and over the same concepts. I got them. I get it. Even if I don't necessarily agree the accuracy of part of it, overall I get that we're talking about what we see as motion could potentially be something in a higher dimension as a solid and and likewise um time being something in in some uh, something we make up in our consciousness so I, so I just wanted to touch base on that because he does put these figures in and um, you know I figured we should uh, that's a pun there I figured we should have uh, um, we should have covered them just at least in this chapter yeah. but I when I read that through I I just looked at it and said I, I don't understand really what the point is other than really saying what I just summarised it as. So that's all I wanted to cover in this chapter. So I think at that point we're out of time. So thanks, guys, for having uh, this discussion. And I, I think it's, um, it's, it has, it has uh, uncovered a few things, but it's also I think this chapter has been really worthwhile. I enjoyed the chapter. Um, I know you did, Sue. And, Pete, I'm, I'm happy to hear your challenge because it actually has made me think uh, yet again uh, more deeply. Thanks again, guys, for such a great discussion. That's great. Thank you. 
So thanks everyone for listening and we look forward to your company uh, next time for Chapter 7.